Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Sarah Elizabeth Biozier. She's the director of the Thinking Dog Center at uh, Hunter College. Uh, It's part of the City University of New York system, CUNY. We're going to talk about uh, her work with dogs. So, Sarah, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, how did you get into uh, working with dogs? Interestingly enough, I think I just sort of fell into it. Um, It was not something that I had set out to do. Um, One of those, studying animals and studying dogs like I do, it's one of those things that I feel like nobody tells you as a child that you can grow up and and study dog cognition and study dog behavior. You could be a vet, you could be a fireman, you you could do all these other things, but actually studying how animals think about the world doesn't really, I guess, roll off the tongue. And so I, I went to college and I went to a school and my, my parents convinced me they were, they told me, are you sure you want to go to that school? We know you love animals. That's not an agriculture school. That's going to be a, a hard transition. And I said, yes, yes, it's fine. I just, I really want to go to the University of Michigan. That's where you guys went. No big deal. And first semester in I thought I had made the worst mistake of my life. I was looking around and I was like, there's no animal classes here. What do I do? And I ended up finding that out that in the psychology departments um, and also in the evolutionary ecology departments that there were people that studied animals and that they didn't just study them in terms of their health and, and improving their quality of life. Those were aspects of it, but that you could also go in and research how they see the world and think about the world and behave in the world around them. So that I sort of just fell into it. Oh, very cool. How long have you been working with dogs? I have been working with dogs now. It's I think it's year 10. Oh, wow. Huh. Very, very cool. Yeah. So what's the focus of your research? What are you trying to figure out about uh, our furry friends, as they say? Our furry friends, yeah. I Originally, I started out being really interested in their social behavior. And this just stemmed from the fact that the person who I ended up uh, researching sort of my master's thesis with, Dr. Uh, Barb Smuts, she was at the University of Michigan, and she was interested in dog relationships with one another. And I started thinking about, okay, it's fairly interesting that animals play. Um, from an evolutionary standpoint, sometimes you you think, what's the benefit of play? It's kind of seemingly purpose um, purposeless, but in fact, there could be many reasons why this could be helpful. It could be that you're practicing foraging skills or hunting skills, um, and cats always come to mind when I think about that. And, and the, but then it could also just be that there's some level of an enjoyment in it. But what's interesting with, with dogs and, and some other species is that they continue playing into adulthood. And so I was wondering if this was something that was just a, a byproduct of domestication and, and how this came about. And I started thinking about how they communicate with one another. And so I was 
thinking, what's the most common or stereotypical uh, behavior you ever see dogs do? And if you're familiar with the downward dog in, in yoga, the, the dog mm-hmm. play bow is this beautiful, lovely feature where the forelimbs are, are down, but the, the hind legs are sort of up in this um, weird high rump position. And I thought nobody's ever really looked at what that is and, and how you use it and, and what it means. And so I spent some time studying the function of the play bow and how dogs use this in their playful interactions with one another. Yeah, they, they go through, the, or at least my dogs, they go through this cycle every day. They're sleeping and all of a sudden they're awake and they're running around barking and then they're playing and then they're sleeping. And they, they get this endless cycle, you know, yeah. day after day after day. Exactly. So we were just curious about why, how they use the, the signal in particular. And, and after that, we, we went down this rabbit hole of trying to see if wolves utilize the signal um, differently, if, if there were variations that could be attributed to different evolutionary histories. Um, and then we followed that up with um, looking at dingoes because dingoes are particularly fun as sort of like this meaty, like this middle ground between um, dogs and wolves, just because they are are in a sense a domesticated dog but they've been rewilded for thousands and thousands of years so it can allow you to address these questions of are the behaviors we're seeing these byproducts of domestication or is it something about the environment potentially that they live in that's really driving um, the difference oh so i mean what have you figured out about play just that uh i mean what i see is you know we've had dogs and then one will pass away and then we get a new one and the young ones always get the old ones going you know, the old yep. ones are like, they, they get to be inactive and the new ones get them moving. They're always biting on them and saying, come on, come on. And then they get them going, you know. Yeah, spot on. Um, younger individuals just generally tend to play um, more often than than the older guys. Um, but that doesn't mean that the older ones don't play at all. And in relation to the play buzz, what we've been finding is that there's a specific context um, in which a these play signals seem to happen. It's not 100% that they always happen that this this way. There's variations, but generally you can see it as an invitation. It's it's used as a as a way to kind of take a break. Uh, a quick pause from from what they've been doing. They could have been running around. They kind of stop. And then you'll generally see a play bow happen from either one or both individuals. And it's sort of like an indication of, I want to engage in something else. I want to do more of this. And oftentimes it will just result in these runaway and chase scenarios, which could be a, this reinitiation of, of a playful interaction. So maybe like a, let's like, are you down to continue this? I want to continue this. Let's, let's do it again. Well, the weird thing they do, they, well, let me see if I can describe this. They, they have like a battle of the mouth. They go, oh, and they <laughs> snort all over each other. They, they snort a lot and their, their mouths are open. They're not biting each other, but they're kind of like, they're using their mouths and heads to, I don't know, like it's a battle of the heads or something is what it seems like. And they, you know, again, they're continuously snorting and doing that. And, you, know, you know what I mean? You yeah. see that behavior, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and It's a funny. Lot of, I don't know why they do that. Well, a lot of, well, I don't know why they do those particular behaviors just in general. Um, but I mean, it, it's interesting that they use 
these these features of themselves that could be particularly harmful, right? Like the jaw is not necessarily the safest place to put somebody else's neck or your play partner's neck. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot about having this this relationship where you're checking out what your partner is doing, and you're also communicating that you're not going to chomp down, and this is not going to end badly. Um, so in a sense, we call these types of behaviors um, self-handicapping behaviors. And, and that might mean that your older dog that's now introduced to this new puppy actually tones down their behavior a little bit to mm. mediate the situation and play at the level that's also still enjoyable for, for the little guy. There's a lot of weird stuff. Like if you're, I, I call it corn cobbing, where they, it looks like they're eating corn on a cob and they're like on, on one of their on the other one's neck and they'll not bite them, but it looks like they're grooming them in a way. It's really strange. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, they do the weirdest things we had when we did this study, we had, I think 40 some plus behaviors that we were looking at. And it was funny every once in a while we had to add one, one to the list. And so we had things like chin overs where one individual would put the chin just over the neck of the other ones. And then you sometimes see rollovers. So where, where one kind of just flops to the side immediately, like in this dramatic um, almost, you know, death, you can imagine it kind of being like, it looks like the equivalent of like children playing, you know, some sword fighting game. And, and one of them just like goes, ah, I'm going down. Um, mm-hmm. And and so you, you see sort of these, these types of behaviors that, are, you know, they don't necessarily make evolutionary sense in in the context. Um, Like, why would you spend your time doing this? Why engage in this? This takes a lot of time and energy, but there could be positive benefits to doing this. It could help with um, sort of solidifying your your relationship with others. It could be, like you you said earlier, that it's just enjoyable at some level, um, and it could be practice for something. So all of these things come up, and you see very weird things. Yeah, sometimes they make strange sounds when they do this. Battle of the Heads. I, I guess I call it Battle of the Heads. I don't know. It's weird. I like <laughs> but, the name. Yeah, they just—they're just funny. What what I don't know is sometimes they'll be laying there, and I'm not—I don't know how they're signaling each other, and all of a sudden they know, okay, it's time to play, or they get mad at each other, or annoyed, and I can't see what's going on. I don't know. You know, how do they know that? I don't know. You know, They're is it body really language I missed or, you know, what do you think yeah. it is? Well, I mean, one of the things that we know um, about dogs in particular in terms of, of their their cognition, particularly their social cognition, is that they're really good at understanding things about us. And and my assumption is that that then also would extend to uh, their conspecific, so their fellow, their fellow companions, um, their other dogs that they live with. And so they're really good at at following things that we find to be simple. So things like pointing um, and even following our gaze or kind of ascribing what we want out of a situation. Like if I'm reaching for something and I'm trying to grab it, but I, I just can't quite get it. All of those things are really salient and, and noticeable to, to dogs. And they use those cues to pick up context specific information. And while that seems like something that is really quite simple, um, it's something that requires development. And so young kids don't do this up until a certain age. And then this becomes something that they're really skilled at. And even um, our closest living ancestors, uh, the great apes, they're notoriously bad at following human given social cues. And so there could be something here about this idea that 
uh, we've co-evolved with dogs. And so they are super attentive, not only to what they're demonstrating and, and their body language and, and their communication, but they're also attentive to, to ours. So maybe they're just super dogs in that sense. Yeah, it's very strange. I don't know. Do you think that, like, what percentage of, of dog communication do you think that we're able to discern and how much is still hidden? It's really hard. Um, I would love to say that we know so much, but in, in fact, this field is really quite young compared to other fields that are out there. Dog cognition and, and dog behavior research as its, its own kind of unit really only started booming within the last 20 years. And, and so that means that many of the things that we're discovering, we're discovering them exponentially. And I think a lot of people at home might see that because we see all these really cool, amazing pop science articles about dogs can do this and dogs can do that. And this cool study about dogs. And and so we see it more and more. Um, But in reality, it's just because there was never a lot there to begin with. Um, So I think we're starting to scratch the surface, but now we're trying to figure out where are the discrepancies and and what have we not yet looked at? And it turns out that there's actually a lot of things that we haven't looked at. And I think a lot of that also stems from the way that we are um, thinking about how we study dogs. So we generally like to take studies that have been done in other species and compare dogs using those same types of experimental methods or, or paradigms and compare them to get an answer about which animals are demonstrating which skills, but that's also kind of a, a, a very one-dimensional way of looking at it because different animals have different skill sets that they've evolved for their context. So it's also important to think about their ecology. Um, and so the tests that we've done primarily with dogs as of late have really focused on um, using dogs' vision to assess certain questions. And while dogs have decent vision, it's it's good. They can they can see things. It's not as as great as ours. It's just, it's different. They're adapted to function better in dim light levels. So in a sense, if you're yeah. driving home really late and it's dark outside, you should probably get your dog to drive for you. I really don't recommend it, but you know, it, in a sense, that's, yeah. they, they would be able to see better in that dusk uh, kind of condition. Um, but their acuity isn't super good. So from, from a far distance, they may not see things as sharply as we do. And so if we're trying to test them on different paradigms that inv- involve just vision, we're only getting one side of the story. Um, and we should also consider the implications that that has on uh, the conclusions we make about them. Because it could be if we tried something else that we might find something different, maybe something like scent or something like audition. I don't know. I've always wondered what it's like to smell as a dog. I mean, has anyone tried to figure this out, set up a VR experience or somehow modeled this on a computer, what it would be like uh, to smell like a dog? Yeah, there's a couple of researchers out there that have studied scent uh, in dogs. And and recently we've we've teamed up with some amazing collaborators at the PenVet Working Dog Center. And they are super cool because they do this amazing detection work, scent detection work with dogs. And they have a whole bunch of different careers. And and so you, you sometimes forget that you can work with dogs and train them to detect essentially most things. It doesn't necessarily need to be an object, but it can actually be biologically related. So things like cancer and medical detection dogs, but that's also different from training a dog to be a conservation detection dog. So training them to either find um, invasive species or endangered species. And so there's so many things with scent that we can do. And it's really hard even for us to, to just think about 
what that would be like. What would it be like if we had a vomeronasal organ, which is this specialized um, olfactory component that dogs have? Um, What would it be like to have that? What would it be like to have more sensory receptors in, in, in the nose that would help us smell more things? Would I live in New York City. I don't know if I necessarily want to smell more things, but, you know, what would that be like? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And conversely, the other the other is true as well. What would a dog think about seeing the world like we do? I guess the, the, that special second nose, that, again, they seem to go like blow air. And I guess they're blowing air around so that when they're sniffing close to a surface, it's it's getting molecules that could be um, aromatic into their nose, literally, like they're they're blowing the smells around into their nose. Yeah. So um, different animal species also have this vomeronasal organ, and um, the idea here is that you often see something called a flemin or a flamen response, um, and you you actually see. I feel like you see this more in in cats and in horses, or at least people. Um, notice it more. And it's when uh, you might see a cat that's got his mouth or her mouth just a little bit open and it's like they've forgotten that it's open and they're just kind of staring at you. Um, and that's the response. They're, they're essentially trying to get information, um, olfactory information from uh, the world around them. And so you're right in a sense. It's, it's like they're trying to use this to um, get in more information and and use that to come up with a behavior or elicit a behavior based off of the context of what they're sniffing. Yeah, I thought they're literally blowing. You know, like when I see them sniff, I, I see, I hear like they're literally blowing some air around to stir up stuff so they can smell better. Is yeah, that like I, a known phenomenon? I'm I'm not sure if anybody's studied the the, the blowing in particular. I definitely have um, my dog who currently, since we all work at home um, and we have to close the door in between our, our different quote unquote at home offices, he loves to stick his nose just underneath the little crevice where mm-hmm. uh, the door meets the floor and he just sits there and, and we call it snuffles. He snuffles mm-hmm. the whole day long. Every time something new happens in one area, he's snuffling on, on the other side. And certainly he's, he's trying to smell things. He's trying to get information about what's going on around him. Yeah, right. They, they snuffle a lot. it's their smelling isn't quiet it's usually sounds like air is moving that's why i was wondering it's probably a very important part of it yeah and i do know that um some research groups when when they study scent detection and they have their experimental setup where they're evaluating a you you know performance on a scent wheel which is essentially this big wheel that has different scents in it and and the idea is that the dogs will alert if they smell a specific odor and an alert could be like a sit or a pawing of some sort, but they actually sometimes even install little microphones on top of the little ports on each scent wheel so that they can hear and make sure that actually the dog is sniffing when they're going around. So snuffling is something that researchers do look at and and are curious about, um, but I don't know if anybody's looked at like what is the optimal snuffle um, in order to detect things. Has anyone tried? I don't know. If I ran a dog daycare place, I wonder if it would be cool if I brought in new smells every day and, you know, for the dogs to smell like, I don't know, 10 new smells. I wonder if it would, uh, I don't know what that would do to them if they were constantly exposed to new stuff all the time, if their brains would grow faster or, you know, what it would be like. It can certainly be enriching to to some dogs. So dogs in general, um, we use this term, are neophilic, meaning that they they generally like new things. Some species do not. 
Um, and so, you know, they are then neophobic. They don't really like new things. I like to consider myself not someone who's fond of change. So potentially I'm neophobic, but you know, that's just me anthropomorphizing a little bit. But what's, what's interesting is um, there's a couple of studies, particularly done in, in shelters that have looked at whether or not you can use scent as enrichment in the kenneled environment, because in shelters, a lot of the time it's, it's a very stressful place mm. for dogs. There's lots of noises. There are lots of smells to begin with. And the smells that you might be smelling there might be smells of dogs who are feeling not so great or, or who of dogs that are scared or, or not having the best of time. And so that can be potentially a non-enriching um, type of overwhelming amount of odor. But I know that there's a couple of researchers out there that have recently um, identified that uh, some scents tend to be enriching and they tend to be things like novel scents. So things like lavender and, and stuff like that. And, and so animals do get used to um, the scents that are around them. And so providing a new one every so often, just to give them something new, something that smells nice and that could possibly be calming does seem to affect um, stress behaviors um, in those types of environments and in the sense that stress is reduced. So it can be helpful. And it's also fun to just do with your, with your dog. I like to throw snacks around the house in um, little pieces of crumpled paper so that my dog can snuffle around for them. Let's hmm. me go to my meetings and gives him something to do. Has anyone tried to test the dog's smell memory and have them smell like dozens or hundreds of things and see if they can pick them out later? Actually, yes. I, I don't know the full details of this study, but there's a recent uh, paper from the Auburn Cognition Group that has done this in scent detection dogs. And I think they found that dogs could remember something of like up to 72 cents and they could remember them going back. And the only reason that it's capped at 72 was because they ran out of scents. They just couldn't figure out what else to give them. They were doing frankincense and myrrh and cinnamon and, and you know, all these other things. And at some point they just ran out of essential oils, I guess. Oh, interesting. So they yeah, have a great scent memory. How, how long range is there? I mean, even dogs that do tracking, you know, bloodhounds or Malinois or whoever does it, like how close do they have to be to really, you know, where their sense, their sense of smell is strong? I would think it's not long range. It would probably be maybe a few inches away, but that's it. It depends. Um, and a lot of it depends on, on what you're searching for and, and how distributed it is within the space. I'm certainly not an expert on this. There are some amazing people out there that do um, uh, things like urban search and rescue and, and more um, and cadaver detection, all of these types of things that would certainly know way more than I do. But um, it, it also depends on, on how you're searching and how that dog has been, been trained to search in the past. And so some dogs are super motivated and are really persistent in, in their searching and they can search for a very long time. And, and other dogs, you know, they also tend to vary in, in individual personality. And, and so what one dog might be able to do might not be what another dog can do, but you know, they, they have different skills for different, for different needs, but it, it largely depends on context. Hmm. So, so to your knowledge, no one really knows uh, the, the range of smell, how far away they can smell. I have a feeling that we have some details about this. It would predominantly come from the researchers who have been doing some of the scent detection work because the Auburn uh, research group, they have dogs that are trained to do what they call vapor wake. Um, and this is a the idea that they don't necessarily need like an on the ground scent trail, but that they can actually detect the molecules 
in the air. And so if this, if you were to be, for example, in the New York City subway system and somebody were to have an item that they're not supposed to have there and the dog was trained to detect for that particular item, the idea is that with vapor wake, if the dog is trained for those methods, that they could actually pick it up and sort of track the, the person and the, and the item through the air as well. So it, a lot of that then depends on probably things like air currents and, and how uh, those uh, little molecules are traveling through the air and what height they're traveling at. And so, but they, they can detect things from relatively far distances. A lot of this is, is training to get them to search. And then even if they can't smell it, they're still searching for it. Yeah, the airport, I remember they set up a, a lane People would walk, and then the trainer would walk with the dog behind the people, like, you know, five feet. And they were looking for vapor trails to see if they were carrying drugs or other stuff, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So they're pretty impressive. I mean, they have, they've got great noses. Their their eyes are, are pretty good, too. We've been doing some research to see whether or not dogs see the world like we do. And, and there's some differences, but in general, they've adapted in many ways to work and communicate with us effectively. And that's a huge skill set within itself. They've probably done more than we have uh, to work with them. I've seen with TV, sometimes, a lot of times they'll just ignore TV completely, like they don't see it. And then I've seen some videos where they do seem to see TV. So it's weird. I, yeah. I don't know um, what uh, makes them see or not see or what, what makes them pay attention or not pay attention to it's funny. I have uh, a dog that does not pay any attention to TV or screens. However, if I'm if I'm video conferencing him and he's somewhere else and and I howl, he'll howl back. So he does recognize and and respond to my um, sort of vocal communication, but he doesn't pay attention to the screen. That's not to say that dogs can't. There are amazing images of. Uh, dogs sort of following objects on on the screen, um, and a lot of the time you'll see that it's it's objects that are moving, um, so like little dots or or little circles and things that that spread around. And, and so dogs are also really good at detecting motion. So even if they're seeing the world in a less sharp fashion um, compared to humans they're still pretty good at detecting motion even from distances. And so that would make sense then if you turn on your TV or turn on your tablet to just, you know, move your cursor around or find something that that sort of just moves up and down and, and bounces around a little bit to just get their attention. They can certainly be trained to uh, respond to stimuli that are presented on the screen, but not every dog will automatically just attune to the screen itself. Yeah, well, mine sit in the front window and Look for anything moving, you know, someone <laughs> getting the mail like a, a hundred feet away and they bark at them. So yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, they're attuned to motion. Yep. They're good at that. They like barking uh, during all of the important meetings now that we work from home. Oh well, yeah. Yeah. On the podcast, we, it used to be like, oh, the dog barked and now it's very common. So it's, it's yes. no big deal. The other day I had to, uh, I had to remove a section of a recorded presentation that I was giving because my dog was sitting next to me gagging. And I was like, this is a fantastic audience. I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here giving a presentation about dogs. And all you have to say is, you know, the gagging noises. This is great. Thank you. That's funny. <laughs> Gotta love them. Gotta love them. What about barking? Is it a language or is it a sub language? Like what, what's the, the thought now? 
so it's a it's a mode of communication. Uh, the term language is a relatively loaded term. So there are many definitions that people use to talk about language, and oftentimes language has things like syntax and and definitions and and a certain word structure order that gets associated with it that potentially is not what we use to describe animals when they are communicating. But it, what's interesting to note is that there are different sort of types of barks that not only do dogs appear to uh, identify, but also humans can identify them. So there's a, a great research team out in Hungary um, called the Family Dog Project. And a couple of years ago, they did some fun research looking at what types of dog barks could people identify. So they recorded all these different types of situations and had people listen to them. And what they essentially ended up finding was that humans were able to roughly identify six different types of barks, things like, oh, that's a happy bark because they're excited or, oh, that's a stranger is approaching bark because that's really low and, and really, you know, um, scary sounding in a sense. Yeah. I mean, what's the, what's the current thinking? Um, how are dogs using barking? Are they using it as a main form of communication or it's just um, a sub form and then body language and other elements are, are a lot more important? I think it's sort of like an all-encompassing repertoire in the sense that we have so many signals that are are being displayed that you can have auditory cues or vocal cues that also link to body language. And then depending on what they are occurring in tandem with, they could mean different things. Um, so while my background isn't uh, necessarily in, in vocal communication, I always like to think about this in terms of the play buzz that we were talking about earlier sometimes people ask me, but I've seen a play bow in a different context. So like when they're alone, how does that mean that they want to initiate play? And so that just tells you that there's other ways in which that signal can be used. And that's true for most animals that they have signals that they put in a different order or they perform in a different circumstance. And it means something totally different. My personal favorite one for dogs is the I'm chewing on something right now or playing with something. And I have forgotten that I'm in this play bow position and my butt is still in the air and I have no mm -hmm. idea that it's still there. I'm just going to forget it. And it, it, it looks so funny because to me, I feel like it must be more comfortable to lie down, but you know, they're, they're enjoying themselves, I guess. So you let the dog do, do themselves and, and hang out. And so that could well, they get uh, very, very guarded. I mean, I guess you know, I just keep thinking of my own dogs that when they get bones, they steal them from each other. They're always looking at the other person's bone. If they get anywhere close, they're growling, like, get away from me. And, you know, even if the other dog's not even caring. And then it, it's just funny. They get, like, so possessive over them, you know? Mm -hmm. there's it's a, ridiculous. There's another uh, very, I think it's a, it's a very innovative study. They uh, had a speaker system in a crate, and the crate was covered. And they put in front of the crate a dog bowl with a yummy snack and then they brought a, a dog into the room so in a sense there was only one dog in the room but they had this speaker and the speaker would play different types of vocalizations and so they played different types of dog vocalizations some of which were this the the sound that you would associate with you know a dog approaching a bone that doesn't quote unquote belong to them 
um, kind of saying like, back off, this is mine. And then they also played other vocalizations. And what you can see is that when you play the, the back off noise and the back off vocalizations that the dog approaching will kind of sometimes stay away. Sometimes they go in for a sneaky maneuver, but they're way less likely to grab it than if any other type of vocalization uh, is displayed, which sort of tells you that potentially they're, they're understanding something about the context and, and, and the relevance of the vocal communication to that specific situation where the bone is accessible. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, they're just funny. I've heard people say that, I guess they're equivalent to five-year-old kids, but do you think they are? That's, that's way too simple. Are they <laughs> skilled, you know, uh, to higher ages in certain ways, or is that not really a useful comparison? I, so it, it's hard to say because I, I don't think we can, it, it's, it's an easy way to compare them, right? To, to just kind of put a number to it so that we understand it better. And if that means that we have a rough idea, I think that can still be helpful. But it's also really important to recognize that we have skill sets that we have evolved because they're helpful for navigating our world. And there's also skill sets that dogs have evolved because they're helpful for navigating their world. And sometimes those two overlap in the sense that because of our co-evolutionary history, there are some things that dogs have just become really good at because it aided their survival in, in living in close proximity to us. And, and so the, the question then becomes, is something like that an indicator of, of intelligence um, or, or not. And, and, and so I think it makes sense to, to think about this in, in terms of a, of a sort of a spectrum. Um, and so just thinking about one line of intelligence that just has age on it isn't necessarily enough. We need to have other lines that take into things like social cognition and physical cognition and a whole variety of different types of cognitive skills might give us a circle if we actually were to map it out. <laughs> so what, what big questions are you working on now? What's next for your research? Yeah, um, at the moment, we're doing a whole bunch of different types of um, different types of research, which I'm, I'm really excited about. We've recently started working on um, trying to see if we can improve the lives of um, shelter dogs. And so that's recently been something that's uh, taken our, our research team by storm, trying to see if we can come up with easy to implement feasibly possible methods to you know put into practice into live operating shelters that will have benefits for the animals that are in there in addition to the ones that already exist and are, are being used and we're also looking at um, these great questions with collaborators regarding what makes a good scent detection dog and how do scent detection dogs compare to pet dogs on cognition tasks are they any different or is there something that can tell us what's going to make a really good urban search and rescue dog versus, you know, a, a apprehension dog? Is there something that we can use early on to, to figure that out? And then one of the things that I've always been interested is in, in the dog's visual system. Um, I, I study how, uh, whether or not dogs are susceptible to visual illusions. And, and we've done this in, in the lab, but now that everybody's at home, I've been trying to come up with creative methods to see if we can get owners in their homes with their dogs to participate in community science-based projects where they conduct science in their home space and record their dogs and, and tell us a little bit about them. And we analyze those videos to see if our findings actually generalize to a broader population of uh, dogs. Now with, uh, I mean, I, I guess people are still working from home where you are, but um, 
are you doing things over Zoom, like guided sessions with, uh, you know, with people with their dogs or like how are you getting the research done? Yeah, most of our projects currently are um, what we call community science. And, and essentially what we do is we put uh, together projects and owners can sign up to participate online and they fill out a couple of questions asking, you know, have you done this thing with your dog before? And, and if not, you know, are you interested in, in spending an hour today or this week presenting your dog with this thing? Um, and oftentimes it, it involves printing off a sheet of paper and uh, putting it on the ground and videotaping how your dog reacts to it. Um, over the summer, we did actually uh, a cat version to trial this out. And we had a great time trying to see if cats would sit in fake boxes on the ground. It was very fun. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so we're being well, very good. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Well, one thing I thought of with, with Zoom, the dog is, or the cat is not going to, they'll be in their native environment and they won't be... Um, you know, someone leading the uh, the participant and their dog. So I guess it'll change the dynamic. I wonder if the dog perceives that, you know, the, the person that comes in, that you're, they're listening to you, like you're the head of the pack. <laughs> and it might change the dynamic between them and their owner. So I wonder yeah. if it strips away a lot of the maybe confounding factors by doing it over Zoom. Certainly. I mean, one of the things that we've been trying to do is to think about how can we take some of the stuff that we've done in our more controlled environments and validate them in larger populations. And the big reason for this is, is that not every dog is a dog that's going to be a fan of coming to a dog cognition center. A lot of the time we get a dog that comes in for their first visit and they, they sort of think, oh, is this like, is this the vet's office? Like what, what's happening here? Um, and so we, we give a lot of treats. We give a lot of cuddles. We have a great time. And over time they, they open up to us and, and they recognize that this is a, a fun place where they essentially just get snacks for, for playing games. But it certainly is a point that that not every dog likes to travel to new environments. And some dogs have um, pre-existing behavioral tendencies that they're not great around food. And, and so in order to minimize the dog's stress, but also our stress at working with um, those types of personalities, it means that we can't necessarily invite them to come in. But this allows us exactly what you're saying to open up the, the to the dog community to access a whole new set of, of dogs that probably couldn't have come to the dog center and to actually think about how that affects our, our data. Um, so we're really excited uh, about this, this prospect and, and trying to see if we can come up with really creative things that allow us to answer questions about dog cognition that invoke natural behavior so that we're not really disrupting their at-home life with their owner. Yeah, yeah excellent. Well, very good. Well, Sarah, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work? Yeah, um, I am on Twitter, and that is a great place. We share lots of things. You can follow me at, um, at S.E. Beozier, which is my last name. Um, and we also have a um, Twitter account for our dog center, which is at Hunter TDC. And um, our, our Hunter uh, Thinking Dog Center also has an Instagram, and we love posting really cute pictures of our dogs. But those are the two best ways to kind of learn a little bit more about us and stay up to date with some of the studies that we have coming up if you're interested in participating. But we also have a website and a Facebook page. And if you ever just search Hunter Thinking Dog Center on Google, you will certainly uh, see us come up. And I'll send you the details as well, Richard, so you can share those uh, on the site. Oh, one last thing I wanted to ask you is my 
you know, pun intended pet theory. <laughs> but when, when one of our dogs gets washed, they go crazy and they run around you know, like, like, and I think that when they get washed, they lose their place in the pack temporarily and they're running around to like reestablish it or something. Uh, What's your thought? The scientific term is, uh, that we go with is the zoomies. And, and yes, you generally often see it after bath time. It can be just a, a state of sort of over arousal and excitement because of something different or something that's changed. Um, I see it in my dog, but it's largely because he doesn't like baths. So when he comes out, he's like, yay, it's over. It's the best day ever. Now I'm done with this. But you can see zoomies in different contexts, not just after bath time, but sometimes with other dogs, sometimes in the middle of the meeting that you have to have and your dog's running around in the carpet you know just making noise behind you constantly so okay because the other ones smell them like crazy so i figured <laughs> i thought that was it but yeah, amateur science here so hey, it's good to have good. theories good to have predictions good to have hypotheses then you can test them all yeah that was true well very good well, sarah thanks for coming it's been a really cool call and i appreciate well, it thanks for having me it was nice to nice to be here if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.